morning. And thank you, Sarah, for leading us this morning. Really helpful. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 13. It's page 1081 in the Bibles in the pews, if you don't have a Bible with you. For the past uh, five Sunday mornings now here at Windsor, we've been thinking about the condition of our hearts, recognizing that the state of in here dictates and determines how we actually live our lives on a day-to-day basis. And so far we've looked at these uh, heart conditions, a new heart, a humble heart, a generous heart, a compassionate heart, and then last Sunday morning we looked at a surrendered heart. Well, this morning I'd like us to consider the importance of and the need for a servant heart. It's already been indicated this morning that that's the theme. And I realize and recognize that it's very similar to a humble heart. But I want to take some of the thinking uh, from week two of this series and take it a little further and dig a bit deeper. Whenever Jesus was about to return to go home to be with his father, he issued a very explicit instruction to the church. In what has come to be known as the Great Commission, he said, go and make disciples. And so in the midst of everything else we do here as church, all the perfectly legitimate stuff that goes on, this must be a primary focus. We must never lose sight of this. We have been set a very specific task. We have to go and make disciples. But what exactly does one of those look like? How would you know one if you met one? Or how would you know one if you made one? How would you define or describe an authentic Christian disciple? Why don't you just think about that for a moment? An authentic Christian disciple is, and you finish the sentence. Well, for the last three years of Jesus' life, before his tragic yet highly significant death, Jesus went in search of people who were willing to become his disciples. And here's how he phrased his warrant. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And so based on those infamous words, let me offer you one, and it is only one, but I think a valid and reasonable definition and description of an authentic Christian disciple. An authentic Christian disciple is a self-denying, cross-carrying Christ follower. But again, what exactly does that look like in a human life in 2009? What does one of those look like? As you meet different people, as you live with them, as you spend time with them, what is it that indicates that they just might be the genuine article? What characterizes their lives, their attitude, their words and their behavior? Well, it's probably a whole range of things, but for me, one central and critical characteristic and essential feature of a Christian disciple is that they possess a servant heart. These are the kind of people who live beyond themselves. They're not self-centered, but instead they have grasped the need to deny self. 
In fact, these are the sort of people who are constantly putting self to death. Again, whatever that means. But they're doing that in order to become like, to act like, and to behave like a servant. They're the kind of people who are increasingly others-focused. And as we've said before, in 21st century society, that is deeply countercultural. We live in an environment that bombards us with messages that, listen, life is all about you. Life is all about me. That my pathway to fulfillment and purpose is found in looking after, number one, that being self-absorbed and being self-centered is somehow profoundly satisfying. And yet, we all know that that just isn't true. Because our society is littered with self-centered and yet deeply unhappy people. The Children's Society released a report on Thursday. And it's received quite a bit of press and media attention. If you were here on Wednesday night, we were praying about this report. And the report focuses in on the state of childhood today. But take a look at this one rather stinging comment. Children are more anxious and troubled and their lives more difficult than in the past. This is due to the quest for material success by adults who must confront their selfish and individualistic culture by focusing on helping others rather than pursuing their own self-centered ends. That is quite a damning indictment on our society. The state of childhood today is recognized as being caused by us as adults who have become so individualistic and self-centered. But as Christians, and as the church, we must model something radically different. We cannot be self-centered. The temptation is there, of course, and in fact, the temptation is extreme at times to remain very self-centered, even as Christians, but we simply can't be. The challenge we face in daily Christian discipleship is to serve others because now we walk to the beat of a different drum. We dance to an alternative tune. And one guy has put it like this. We love, we serve, and we care for others. Hear this, because that is normal behavior of people who are filled with God's spirit. We are Christians. Christ was the ultimate servant. We can't help but serve because the spirit of the servant has filled our hearts. When we serve, we are just being who we naturally are. In other words, self-denying, cross-carrying Christ followers serve as a natural expression of who they are, not because they have to. And therefore, I want to suggest that if we're keen to check out how are we actually doing in this disciple-making process as a church, that one of the main ways to check how we're doing is to simply monitor the existence or the presence of servant hearts in our midst. And it starts with me. And to earth this and to clarify it, I want to take a look at one of the most dramatic moments in the life of Jesus. And it occurs close to the end of his all too short life. And it's recorded in John chapter 13. And it's a familiar incident, but the shock of it should never cease to impact us. 
And the disciples are sharing an evening meal. And they're all there, including Judas, who by now has been primed by the devil to betray Jesus. But then something quite outrageous happens. And if we join the story in verse 3, you can see it in front of you or it's also on the screen. John 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel round his waist. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And I want us to pause there. And I'm sure most of us know the context That at this time and in that culture, whenever people arrived to eat together, they would have had their feet washed before they reclined at a low-set table. People did not sit on chairs. They lay down to eat. And foot washing was a common practice. There was a ritualistic dimension to it. It was also a token of hospitality. But in addition, there was a very practical, hygienic aspect to this that we must bear in mind. If feet weren't washed, then you ended up munching your food right next to dust and dirt caked feet. Which is not a very pleasant thought. The problem on this particular occasion is apparent. No one has turned up to wash feet. Could have been an administrative oversight. Who knows? But usually there was a slave present to carry out this task. And in most situations, the task was considered so menial that according to some Jewish sources, even Jewish slaves were exempt from performing this task. And so it was left to the Gentile slaves to do it. In John 13, no slave, no servant of either persuasion seems to be present. But what is really interesting to note is that the water is there. The basin is there. The towel is there. But the missing ingredient was human engagement. Now as you read between the lines, I'd like you to try and picture the scene. And there is a bit of conjecture I know involved here. But the disciples arrive and they file in. And I wonder who was first through the door. And whenever... He enters the room, whoever he was. It's decision time. Because he sees the water. sees the basin. He sees the towel. But he notices that there's no foot washer present. So what does he do? He's facing a major dilemma. Does he wash his own feet? Or even more radical, does he consider stepping into the foot washer's shoes or sandals and offering to wash everyone else's feet? Seems he does neither. So he goes and sits at the table. Or reclines there. And then the second enters. Thinks similarly. It's not my job. I'm no slave. I'm no servant. That's beneath me. And so he keeps walking and he takes his place at the table. And I wonder... Did they raise the issue with each other? And eventually all the disciples appear to follow suit and they stick their dirty feet in each other's laps because none of them were prepared to get down and perform this nasty little task. 
Jesus has also arrived. And so as we read in verse 2, the meal is underway. And Jesus clearly notices this unique situation, because this would have been a unique situation. He's aware of the jug of clean water. The dry, empty, clean basin. The non-soiled towel. And he's aware of 24 dirty feet, excluding his own. And if we pause at that point in the story, I want us to imagine what Jesus might have been thinking. Three years of sermons, 36 months of instruction, 156 weeks of role modeling, and it seems these disciples still haven't got it. And according to Luke, it was also around this time that the disciples were having a huge row about who was the greatest. And you know something? That really encourages me. Because it seems that even those who literally walked in the shadow of Jesus messed it up. And I know how much I mess it up living years later trying to follow in his footsteps. Now although none of the disciples have washed each other's feet, surely someone should have had the humility, the servant heart to wash the master's feet. But apparently not. And so the tension in the room must have been tangible. There must have been a profound sense of discomfort and dis-ease as Jesus gets up from the table and he begins to take off his outer clothing according to verse 4. This simply cannot be happening, but it is because Jesus then wraps the towel around his waist. He pours the water into the basin and he starts washing feet. And the disciples surely must have exchanged glances because this was an exceptional moment. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them were lost for words. This was an embarrassing moment and they probably wished the ground would at this moment open up and swallow them. But as you continue to picture the scene, I want you to try with your mind's eye to stare into the eyes of the disciples at this particular situation that was unfolding before their eyes. And what do you see as you look into their eyes? Agony? Regret? Maybe even tears? What's the matter with me? How did I miss this? My whole world revolves around me. It's bad enough that I wasn't humble enough to wash my brother's feet, but I'm so self-centered I wouldn't even wash my master's feet. And Andreas Kostenberger commenting on this writes, Every act of Jesus described here in excruciating detail would have been like a dagger in the disciples' hearts, convicting them of their pride and their refusal to lower themselves to the role of a servant. And there appears to be one disciple who just couldn't sit there silently and surprise, surprise, it's Peter. And Peter opens his mouth and speaks. And after a brief conversation with Jesus, Jesus then finishes the task and he says these words back to John 13, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked him. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. And then, what Jesus is about to say needs to be etched onto the heart and the mind of every one of us 
who claims to be a self-denying, cross-carrying Christ follower. Because Jesus says this, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Not could do, not might do, but you should do this. Jesus has set us an example and we have been called to be his reflection. A verse we've referred to on many occasions here already during my time here. 1 John 2, 9. Those who claim to live in God must walk as Christ walked. Bill Hybels, reflecting on these words, writes, Soul satisfaction comes from reflecting Jesus Christ and there's no clearer reflection of Christ than one person serving another. A few years ago, a few years, sorry, after this incident in John 13, the Apostle Paul sums up the example of Jesus, the example that he left his followers. Again, familiar words. In your relationships with one another, your attitude must be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then further on down it says, He made himself nothing and took on the nature of a servant. And Paul there challenges us to a new perspective, to a crisp, clear understanding of what Jesus models for us. So that as we go home, as we go into work, as we come to church, as we live in our communities, that our reflex reaction must be humble service of others. Jesus unapologetically and without ambiguity calls every one of his followers to acts of kindness and servanthood like foot washing. I don't believe Jesus was commanding or introducing a foot washing ritual. Basins will not be appearing in this church on a weekly basis. But what I do believe is that Jesus was urging us to adopt a servant attitude. And this incident stands as a visual demonstration of the need to lower ourselves and serve others. And Jesus often used visual demonstrations. He often used this as a teaching technique. And this was probably one of the most profound moments in the teaching life of Jesus. Because here visually Jesus was demonstrating to these guys who were watching what it meant to walk in his footsteps. And Jesus invites us to live beyond ourselves. To look beyond our own concerns about our social status and about our titles and about our positions. And to look beyond beyond my wants and my desires and my rights and the culture we live in is such a my rights culture. I honestly believe Jesus wants us to look beyond that and to begin to pick up symbolically the towel and serve one another in practical, tangible and at times even simple ways. That as we, his followers, walk into rooms and walk into spaces, and whether that's when we walk home this afternoon or into our workplaces tomorrow or wherever, that we ask this question, is there a simple act of kindness that I can perform here to serve another human being?
that as you live with others and work with them and study with them and spend time with them, that you look for opportunities to serve them. Why? Because the spirit of the servant fills your hearts now. And also because the one you claim to follow has set you an example, has modeled something that he urges you to follow. But I wonder, can you identify with this thought? Do you ever feel like there's just so much going on in your own world? That actually, I've got so much to contend with in my own life, that doing something for someone else, actually thinking about someone else, never mind serving someone else, is actually a tall order. It's a bridge too far. I know that's where it's often at with me. And yet whenever I take a step back and I think about what was going on in Jesus' world and in Jesus' life at this time, then I'm deeply challenged. Because Jesus was about to be betrayed by his closest friend or one of his closest friends. And he knew that. And Jesus was about to suffer intense physical, emotional and spiritual pain. And he knew that. That's why in verse 1 it says that Jesus knew his hour had come. That his time was up. The prospect of torture and abandonment and death were at the forefront of his mind. And yet even with all that was going on in his world and all that was going on in his life and all that was going on in his head, he still chose to serve others. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You see, when it comes to serving others, I tend to be quite selective. I'll do it if I feel like it, or I'll do it if I'm motivated, or I'll do it if I'm having a good day, and everything else in my world is going okay. I've also got to admit sometimes that I'll do it if I think I might get recognized for doing it. Or I'll do it if I get a pat on the back for doing it, and I get applauded for doing it. And yet a true servant, I discover, rarely gets any credit. Isn't interested in negotiating terms. Isn't expecting any rewards. A true servant is simply available. Available to do what needs to be done. Even if that means getting down and performing some nasty little task. Their default position, it seems, is to serve. But as we close, look at verse 17. Because there is an amazing promise for those who choose to live this way. Verse 17, Jesus says, Now now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus actually says that if we follow in his footsteps, we will be blessed. There's a blanket across the board, no exception promise, that towel bearers, foot washers, servant-hearted people, those who live beyond themselves will become recipients of God's sovereign blessing and divine favour. And that, if nothing, should be an incentive. And so we may live in a selfish culture. We may even be under extreme pressure to live for ourselves. But the way of Jesus invites us to walk a path of living beyond ourselves. Many in our society will continue the search for inner peace and meaning and self-gratification. But Christ invites us to follow his example with reckless abandon and in doing that to discover 
God's blessing as we serve others. But as I finish, I want to end on a positive note. Because I realize, and as I was thinking about this and preparing for this, I realize that so many here model this state of the heart. Many of you do serve others. Many of you this week have taken meals to somebody else in need. Many of you have visited people and sat with them and spent time with them and just served them and just lived beyond yourself. This week has not been all about you. And on Education Sunday, we particularly give thanks for all those who do serve our kids and our young peoples in classrooms and in lecture halls. But here at Windsor Baptist, I also want to acknowledge all those who have served us here voluntarily this morning. And so, Alison and Dave as deacons have served and opened up and went out and threw salt all over the place to make sure nobody would slip and fall. Trevor, as an elder, has served here this morning. On PA, Simon has served us. Musicians Lindsay and Anna and Ken and Alison and Heidi have served us. Sarah has led our service and served us. In creche, this is the rota. may not be who's actually out there, but at least this is who is meant to be there. But they can act as representatives. Hilary, Heather, Janet, Colleen and Rosie Bunn. Joel and Joanne and Rick in Bible class, Benny and Paul Johnson and those who left to teach our kids. And on coffee, David and Karen were here and have set up and will serve us coffee and tea. And that list could go on. I know Paul will go away from here and he will upload the service and he will get it on the net so it's on the website. Countless people here who serve voluntarily. I get paid for doing this. But many of you serve. And so one response to this morning might be to volunteer, to serve here in some capacity. There are many opportunities to serve here. And so if you want to think about that, then come and speak to me afterwards. You may want to think about going and serving with SU or another organization this summer on a team or a camp. Then take that opportunity to do that. But whatever you do, Let me encourage you to symbolically pick up a towel as you leave here this morning and go and serve others this week through simple acts of kindness that model Christ.